Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scribbin-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides the litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. The U.S. Supreme Court had a historic last term, including welcoming a new justice, striking down Roe v. Wade, the unprecedented leak of a draft opinion, an assassination plot, and questions from many in the public about the legitimacy of the court. With the court's new term beginning October 3rd, the court will take up additional major cases on issues such as affirmative action, voting access, LGBTQ rights, immigration, and much more. To give us a preview of the upcoming SCOTUS term, I'm happy to welcome Mary Christine Sangaila to the show. MC is a shareholder in Buckalter's Orange County and San Diego offices. She's a highly regarded appellate attorney who has briefed and argued appeals raising cutting-edge and fundamental business issues for over two decades. Her work has shaped undeveloped areas of the law and constitutional law, employment, franchisor liability, product liability, class actions, probate, immigration, Holocaust art recovery, and human rights. MC is also the host of the Porsche Project podcast, which chronicles the storied careers of women judges and lawyers. Welcome to the show, MC. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Well, let's jump right in to discuss the direction of the court. We've had uh, a new Supreme Court justice that was just confirmed, Judge uh, Brown Jackson, the first African-American female on the court. MC, how do you view this historic confirmation and what impact will she have on the court? Well, I think obviously always whenever there's even a change in one member of an appellate body, particularly the U.S. Supreme Court, there's just a ripple effect throughout the court from just changing one member. But in this case, when we're talking about Justice Jackson, who, as you noted, is historic, a historic appointment, there are really... I think, two ways of looking at the importance and impact of her presence on the court. And the first thing is a cultural one. And by that, I mean the example that she provides by being on the court and by being the first African-American woman justice on the court that is obviously notable. It provides a role model aspect for those of the next generation who might be aspiring to achieve something similar, to see that that is possible with a highly capable women lawyer and judge taking on that role. So, so you have that, the cultural significance of her appointment, which honestly I'll say is you know sort of consistent with the mission of my own podcast, The Portia Project, which profiles women judges and lawyers also in an effort to inspire the next generation to achieve or aspire for those particular roles in leadership positions that women now hold throughout the profession, which is rel a relatively recent development over the last couple of decades. So cultural impact, and then 
The second one, of course, is doctrinal, which would be, okay, what is going to be the impact on the voting pattern in the court? Is it going to have, is her presence in place of Justice Breyer going to be something that is significant in terms of where the votes land in particular cases, particularly in a term like this, where there are so many really significant blockbuster kind of cases, even in the very beginning of the term. So that question is at least initially probably, you know, not as significant a change because she is replacing Justice Breyer for whom she clerked. And her record at this point doesn't seem to indicate that that she would be significantly more progressive than than Justice Breyer. So at this point, at least in terms of the votes, you would think, okay, kind of status quo. But the but the question would be, I think, what kind of ripple effect would she have through, throughout the court, perhaps? What kind of influence within the court would she have? She's a, a very, you know, personable uh, person. I do happen to know her from, we, we both entered the American Law Institute at the same time, so we're in the same class. And She has, I think, the possibility, like Justice Gorsuch, who has brought a lot of different groups together in in certain cases and and, and in crossover votes that you might not have seen, perhaps she could have that that kind of uh, superpower as well. But that remains to be seen. That's interesting. And you mentioned, you know, your podcast and your work highlighting the efforts of women lawyers and judges. We've seen advances in the progress of women in the law and in politics. So we now have a female vice president and four Supreme Court justices. How do you think women are doing and what progress still needs to be made? Well, I think you can, one of the bright spots, I think, of the the trends that the women judges and lawyers I've interviewed on the podcast show by their own careers and opportunities. And even from this appointment, we're talking about the first woman on the Supreme Court, Justice O'Connor, in the 1980s, early 1980s. And now we have four women justices. So that's uh, quite a change in relatively short period of time in the whole in the whole scheme of things. Some of us wish it might have been a little bit sooner, but it is you know much more representation over a, a 40-year period, essentially. And that's consistent with the stories I've heard of those who started their careers in law school, let's say the late 1970s or early 1980s, and then those who started in the late 1990s. Even that difference, there's a huge difference between the early 1980s being in law school and the late 1980s and early 1990s when I was in law school. Just a huge difference in that time frame. There was, in addition to Justice O'Connor's appointment, that led to a ripple effect of a lot of other appointments on state benches and federal benches across the country. So that certainly was an impact, having one woman on the court. And then also in the private practice realm and, and other you know job opportunity realms, there were some limitations on, we'll just say access for women to some of those jobs as well. There are stories that those who later became state Supreme Court justices and other significant positions will recount and have recounted on the podcast, which was there were either explicit signs saying only men on law review need apply for this position at private firms, or there was some some indication that you could apply to this large law firm, 
but you couldn't ever be a partner and you'd really only be there sort of in a conditional two or three year stint. So I can say, looking at that, we're definitely not there. We're, we're neither of those places at this point. And it's exciting to the extent that you say, okay, those initial barriers are not there. Women are much more represented in law schools now, almost half of the law students, and so many flowing into the profession in the beginning. But the question, as you noted, is, are there still continuous challenges? And there are. The number of equity uh, partners who are women at law firms really hasn't moved very much and moved the needle very much. Uh, whether you're talking about managing partners or practice group leaders, there, there might be more of those, but still not as many as you might expect with the significant number of women now graduating law school. So there are still things to, to look at and to consider changing. But I hope that seeing from one woman on the court to four at this point to initially you don't even need to apply to yes you're in the mix and you, you can apply and you can enter you know the realm of certain law firms that is a huge improvement and it, i hope that it inspires people to say wow okay i can i can get in there and you know start making some inroads where they might have been foreclosed previously progress made, but progress still need to be made um, for sure. So let's turn to kind of the legitimacy of the court. And we've had, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade being overturned. And I think for many folks and Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts recently acknowledged that the last term was difficult in many respects. And I think it's because people are thinking about the legitimacy of the court. And what do you think about this problem? Can the Chief Justice in particular or other members of the court do things to kind of stem the tide. Is this is this a function of just you know people not liking the decisions of the court, or is this more of a sy systemic problem? Yeah, well, I think there. I think the question you know under underlying that question is what do we mean by um, you know concerned with the legitimacy of the court, right? What is causing that concern? And I think you alluded to at least two things, two different perspectives that that I've heard myself. One is concern about adherence to precedent in light of the ruling in Dobbs and the overruling of Roe versus Wade, something that a lot of people thought really would never happen and that it was very, very well established in the law. That kind of shook some people's confidence in, in the court. Would, would it continue to adhere to its precedent or is it going to have some kind of continual sea change and be comfortable with that? The second part of the legitimacy inquiry, I think, also stems from other, other things that were going on in connection with the Dobbs decision. That would be, as you mentioned at the outset, the leaking, the unprecedented, unprecedented, like full leak of a draft opinion before it came out. And then also the conduct towards the individual justices, the, the arrest and charging of someone who had apparently had some kind of plan to assassinate Justice Kavanaugh. There were also the picketing at the justices' homes, uh, right outside their homes. There was some efforts by some groups to, to send people to Justice Barrett's church where, her, where she and her children attended and to, you know, kind of speak to them there about the draft opinion. So all of that also lends some concern to legitimacy as well. Whether it's because you think, hmm, 
maybe that behavior may impact the ultimate decision of the court. It doesn't appear that it did. It appears the final decision was similar to the draft, but you wonder about whether that kind of behavior could impact individual decisions at some point. And then also the question of the leaking of the opinion gives you, you know, some concern. You think, hmm, is this, this is perhaps someone who who had legitimate access to that opinion. And does that somehow undermine the idea that you would like to think that those who are doing the work of the court at whatever level are committed to the court as an institution? And were they concerned about the impact on the institution of re- releasing that? Or was it more of a, an interest in you know, maybe hoping to get a different decision than the draft. So all of that, I think, is swirling around and different people focus on different things. As to the precedent point, oh, Chief Justice, we have kind of two perspectives of the court within the court, right? Chief Justice Roberts has recently spoke at the Tenth Circuit Conference, and he said, I don't really understand how you can say that the court, you question the legitimacy of the court when we're talking about yeah, we, we we overruled precedent, but that does happen on occasion. And I'm not really sure how that undermines the entirety of the court. And then Justice Kagan made the, you know, made the counterpoint, which is yes, it it does because of the timing at which that precedent was overturned. Very soon after there was a change in personnel in the court, and there could be a perception that that decision was somehow a political one rather than a rule of law one. So those are two different perspectives within the court itself. I I can't pretend to to suggest anything to to the members of the court or to the chief justice about what he might do to sustain faith in the institution. But I, I, I know that that is a very important thing for him in his role as chief justice. So, you know, it would seem that he would take that very seriously. Well, and it, it, occurs to me and you were mentioning you know the personal relationships on the court and um, with Judge Jackson coming onto the court I know um, Chief, Chief Justice Roberts had some very nice things to say say about her and there was a lot in the press recently about the relationship between I believe it was Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg and I think there's a real counterpoint or difference between what you see on the court in terms of people who uh, disagree but can still be friendly and what happens kind of in the general public, which is, you know, people yelling at each other and being nasty. The court, each justice of the court, I think, gives us a really good example of how to disagree with each other, but in a friendly way. And still, you can still have a personal relationship with someone you disagree with. Yeah, I mean, you can see that in the behavior. I mean, Justice Gorsuch certainly is, you know, very gentlemanly about differences of opinion. Justice Sotomayor spoke about that recently as well, where she said, yeah, we we might disagree, but we have a very collegial relationship with each other. We respect each other. We might have differences, but we we work it out and i that really is fundamental to a court that is a collegial court i mean one judge does not one justice does not a decision make in the cases they take you know fully on on the merits and so they they need to have that kind of working relationship in order to reach some kind of consensus with regard to what an opinion should be and to parse out the votes 
But also that is helpful to the development of the law. When you're talking about the highest court of the land, you want everything to be vetted. You want things to be questioned and go back and forth. You don't want just one judge making a decision because they make decisions on the facts of a particular case, but they are highly aware that the decisions they are making impact well beyond those the parties to that case. So when they're deciding a case, they also want to think that we have considered every possible application and implication of the decision we're reaching and the rule that we're announcing or applying. And so that you get from having different perspectives and the debate. So I think they see the value of that in the decision-making itself. Well, I think that's a a really great transition point to to talking about the upcoming uh, Supreme Court term. Uh, There's some really interesting cases out there, and we can't talk about them all. uh, But I wonder if you can give us kind of a high-level summary of of some of the more interesting cases that, that you see coming up in the next term. Yeah, well, as I'm as I use that term blockbuster earlier, and I, you know, it can be a little bit cliche and a little bit overused, but I don't think that's the case uh, in this particular term. There are a lot of hot button issues that are we already know are teed up before the court in the in the fall, in the very beginning, just kicking off arguments in October. Right out of the gate, they're going to hear arguments involving affirmative action in college admissions the clash between free speech and anti-discrimination laws, voting rights, the authority of state courts to nullify actions by state legislatures, uh, to set rules for federal elections. So all of these areas in which there's a lot of societal debate and interest are now uh, coming before the court, you know, really all at once. So there's a lot of, you know, really important areas that the court will address. I'll note the ABA has filed amicus briefs in many of these cases consistent with uh, policy that the ABA has separately adopted. And also with regard to the college admissions cases, there's an interesting point there in that Justice Jackson will not be able to participate and is recused from the Harvard case because she previously served on the board of overseers there, uh, but she will be participating in the North Carolina case. So her views on affirmative action and race-based admissions will be you know, addressed, at least in one of the cases. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch. Okay, great. So there were three cases that I wanted to ask you about. I think all a couple of them are just kind of interesting to me, but one in particular, I think, is of interest to all litigators, which is, so we're going to start with the Mallory versus Norfolk uh, Southern Railroad Company case, dealing with what I always think thought of was kind of a a fundamental uh, personal jurisdiction point. When is a a business that does business in a state um, subject to personal jurisdiction? So what's that case all about? Yeah, so I can tell we're we're talking about all these, you know, hot sexy issues and the first thing we talk about is, you know, jurisdiction over corporations. But that's okay, it'll get more interesting everyone. So, this is actually an issue that has been percolating in state supreme courts in a lot of different cases recently. Challenges to registration laws. So a lot of states say, "Hey, when you decide to do business here um and you register to do business in our state, you automatically consent to being sued here. You consent to jurisdiction in this state. And there have been a lot of challenges by companies to those laws recently. 
And now that uh, challenge, and, and some of them have been successful. And so now that question comes to the U.S. Supreme Court. So instead of going state by state, we'll, we'll now have a, a pronouncement from a, from a federal due process uh, standpoint. So in terms of are these okay, is this really true consent to jurisdiction or is it basically compelled sort of hostage consent, right? You, you want to do business, you have to do business. And so in order to do that, you have to agree to be sued there. And is that truly a consent by the company or is it kind of threatened? <laughs> you have to do it if you want to do business there. And so many businesses do have have business across the country. So it is a very important case from the standpoint of it, it, it will affect every one of these uh, consent by registration laws, many of which as the, the one in Pennsylvania that's at issue has been in existence since 1874. So these are longstanding registration laws. Right. And, and longstanding for, for all of us who, you know, draft complaints for a living. Now we're going to have to uh, find a different, assuming the case goes the other way, we're going to have to find a different way to, to bring corporations into the, into the court. But let's move on to uh, the 303 creative case. This is, a, as you said, a little more sexy than personal jurisdiction. Tell us a little bit about that case. Sure. So a lot of people have have uh, shorthand referred to it as really a sequel to the Masterpiece Cake sh- cake Shop case, which the court previously decided involving a Christian baker who refused to make a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And uh, the court had resolved that case on pretty on pretty case-specific grounds. Uh, also another Colorado case, this, this uh, Alenis case is also Colorado, but on the narrow grounds of the Colorado panel that had reviewed the the baker's situation in in Masterpiece Cake Shop had shown animus towards the uh, religious, you know, free exercise of religion by the baker. There had been some untoward comments in the administrative uh, proceedings. And so it was a relatively narrow decision. So in the new case, the new case before the court, involves a website designer, also a Christian, with religious objections to same-sex marriage. And she is seeking to get a ruling from the court that Colorado's anti-discrimination law may not compel her to design websites for same-sex couples who are getting married. So this involves a public accommodation law and whether applying that, as the question presented says, to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the First Amendment's free speech clause. So it it falls a little bit short of a really broad pronouncement with regard to First Amendment free exercise, but and places it in the context of this particular public accommodation law. But this will be a really interesting case to watch because Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, all of them have expressed you know, an interest in in free exercise and having that be quite robust. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that impacts this case. Yeah, and the the, the one thing that I saw from a news article talking about this case said, well, a website when you're making a website for somebody, that is the essence of what free speech is, which I don't know. Maybe that's an obvious point. Maybe not. But you know. I, to me, it, it is similar to kind of your your it, it, 
you're not as a website designer, you know, making an opinion, you're providing a business service kind of like a wedding cake for, for example. And so do you see these, uh, what the definition of what free speech is coming into play in this case? Yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously it's in, it's embedded in the, in the question presented. So definitely that, that will be something that's addressed. I mean, the, the wedding cake question in, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, I remember in that case, there was this really, um, really kind of like aha um, amicus brief that was filed talking about how are cakes some kind of creative expression. And boy, by the, the photos and examples they had in that brief, you, you were convinced that yes, there is a creative aspect. These wedding cakes is, you know, it's not your, your wedding cake of yesterday. There's a lot of creativity to that. So that was at play there. It, it'll be a play here again. And there are a lot of these cases that are continuing to be brought. There's wedding photographer cases. There's here's the the web designer and and then the the cake designer. There's there are a lot more coming down the pike. So so it'll be interesting both to see where those go in light of this decision. Absolutely. And then the final case uh, to discuss is the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts versus Goldsmith. Really interesting to me because I never would have thought that Andy Warhol was violating copyright law, but tell us more about that case. I know it makes you think like all of Andy Warhol's work might be in question, um, if, depending on what happens with this decision. So yeah, so this case involves Andy Warhol's Prince series of, of works that have you know been displayed in museums and galleries. And like you say, we, we all think of as, as a unique work. But the question in this case is, okay, what do we mean by fair use and what is transformative use that would put you within the protection of fair use? And there's really a, a tussle, really, I would say, at a philosophical and like core doctrinal level in this case. The number of amicus briefs and the range of people who are interested in this from Motion Picture Association to all manner of artists and you would think it would come out one way or the other. It's like, no, depending on how their work goes, it's not like artists versus, you know, purely uh, traditional producers. It's really mixed. This question of what does your work have to do in order to fall within the fair use exception? And Andy Warhol is arguing, well, this the standard should be something that somehow gets to the meaning and message of the artistic work. If the meaning or message is modified, is different uh, by the new work, then, then it should be fair use. The counter argument is, no, no, that is some kind of new gloss on the test that this court has adopted for fair use. And instead, it should really focus on the purpose and character, whether, it, whether the new work embodies a different purpose and character from the previous work or not. You know, I'm really looking forward to the oral argument in this case. It really involves uh, we have Lisa Blatt on one side for the respondents and Roman Martinez for the Andy Warhol Foundation. So it'll be a it'll definitely be an interesting argument. Excellent. So we're going to be wrapping up our discussion for today. We're coming to the end of our time. Uh, do you have any kind of final thoughts for our audience today? I know, for example, the the Supreme Court I think just announced that they're going to be opening up arguments to the public again, allowing uh, the audio recordings, anything to look from that uh, aspect or anything else that you wanted to impart uh, for our listeners? 
Yeah, well, definitely. I think just in terms of the way the arguments will proceed, uh, we'll go back to how it was, you know, now that they're back in the courtroom and and doing them there instead of by telephone. The whole argument structure changed during COVID because there were telephonic arguments, remote arguments, the, the court wasn't open, and or at least the building wasn't open. And so neither did you have the audience present, although the audience could hear, you know, remotely with the live streaming, but, but you had this kind of rigorous questioning of everybody gets three minutes in this order um, by the justices so that there wasn't a lot of talking over each other. And that presumably will go by the wayside again, and it'll be a little bit more freewheeling now that they're back in the court building. MC Sangaila, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate your perspectives on what we can look forward to in the Supreme Court. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis to the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunton Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome back to the show, Latasha. Hi, Dave. How are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So I understand you're going to talk about third-party discovery today. So what's your quick tip? Yes, I actually um, was inspired by an article, a Practice Pointers article that I recently read in Litigation News in the View from the Bench section. And it's an article written by Judge Karen Stevenson, who is a federal magistrate judge in the Central District of California. The article is third-party discovery, getting what you need. So I'm going to give some practice pointers on third-party discovery. Perfect. So Judge Stevenson gives some tips to master the process of third-party discovery so you can get the essential information you need that may be in the possession of individuals, companies, or entities that are not a party to a lawsuit. So she gives a number of tips, and I'm going to highlight just a couple. The first one is know the rules. Rule 45 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure governs non-party discovery. And you may be thinking about Rules 33 or 34, but those rules which pertain to interrogatories and written discovery, respectively, actually pertain only to parties. So Rule 45 actually allows for a court-issued subpoena uh, to command a non-party to uh, attend a deposition or to produce documents. And that is the rule that you will want to be well-versed on when it comes to non-party discovery. So the first tip is know the rule. The second tip is start early. You definitely do not want to wait until the final weeks of fact discovery to pursue third-party discovery. Third-party discovery can take so much longer than you would expect. Um, there can be weeks of negotiation for the production of documents or the deposition dates of non-parties. Uh, the non-party typically, um, depending on the type of case, will retain counsel, and that can be a bit of a process. Um, and also, depending on the type of case, you may have trouble locating the non-party witness, and that may also take time and require some investigation. So, Non-party discovery is something that you want to get started on right away and early in your case. The third tip is getting documents before the deposition. 
So Rule 45 allows for a deposition of a non-party witness. So you can command the deposition of the non-party witness, but also command the production of documents. And you want to subpoena those documents at the same time as you subpoena the testimony. This will allow time for you to obviously review the materials and prepare the witness. But more importantly, it also allows for any time to resolve any time that you may need to resolve any motions to compel um, if the non-party witness is uh, not cooperative or also a motion to quash if the non-party witness um, objects to producing documents or appearing for a discovery. So you want to get the documents before the deposition. The final tip that I will share from the article is being strategic about what you ask for. And I'll actually couple this with another tip, which is about avoiding undue burden on non-parties. So you want to give careful thought to the request for production, and you want to anticipate objections and draft your requests accordingly. And I would actually submit that this is something that you should keep in mind for party discovery as well. You you want to avoid overly broad language. So for example, uh, instead of asking for all documents on a particular issue, maybe you just ask for a less objectionable document sufficient to show X, Y, Z. Um, or you want to also identify the time frame for the witness's involvement and ask for documents that are particular in time and scope um, that would also be less objectionable. So to get what you need in third-party discovery, Judge Stevenson suggests that you, one, know the rules, two, start early, three, get documents before the deposition, and the last tip, which is a combination of two tips that she provides, is that you are strategic about what you ask for and you avoid any undue burden on non-parties. Well, great, Latasha. Thanks so much for being with us to provide your practical tips for today. Sure. Thanks for having me. As a reminder, ABA litigation section members can access practical tips and advice like those in the article mentioned by Latasha on today's show. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on, on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at our next litigation section event. So please make plans to join us at the Professional Success Summit in Los Angeles, October 26th through the 28th. This is a great conference and CLE event dedicated to maximizing the potential of litigators from racial and ethnic backgrounds that have been traditionally underrepresented in the legal profession. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org PSS. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thanks, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio contact committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True, 
Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. We'll be right back.